Luke 23, verse 26. Now as they led him, that is the Christ, away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Let's pray once more. Lord God, we plead with you even now that you would grant grace to us, that you would grant help by your Spirit, that the things which are spoken here concerning Christ which seem in some ways so far beyond our understanding, so far beyond our experience, so far outside our, our own realm, may be brought close to us, and that we, gracious God, may be given an understanding and a feeling of what is taking place as our Saviour goes up to Calvary. Lord, help us in this, we ask. Bless your servant that he may preach Christ and bless every ear and heart that we might receive him. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the cruel and the unjust sentence has now been passed. A man who three times at least has been declared guilty, has been condemned, declared innocent rather, has been condemned as guilty. And now they lead that man, Jesus of Nazareth, away. It seems that both the Romans and the Jews together are united in this. Perhaps again further echoes of the second psalm. And they are leading Christ outside the city. Because that is where these uh, crucifixions, these executions take place. So as we come to this portion... Our Lord is coming to the end of his way. He is going to be crucified. If you've been listening to this series for some time, you will recall that there is a point in Luke's narrative at which Christ turns his face to Jerusalem. And knowing what lies ahead of him and facing it with the kind of vigour and intensity that makes people who watch him as he strides upward and onward quail themselves, our Lord goes having some clear sense of what lies ahead. But that sense has been intensifying over the last few hours of his earthly experience. He's been in the garden of Gethsemane. He's felt the the cup of the wrath of God being put in his hands. He's pleaded that if at all possible it might pass from him, but he has submitted himself to the will of his Father. And so now he feels then the weight of our sin in his soul. 
in his mind. How could it not be under the circumstances? The shadow of the cross is looming ever larger. And in his flesh are the marks of abuse that he has suffered over the course of the previous 10 to 15 hours some of which Luke has not gone into in any great detail. But as you piece together the records from Matthew and from Mark and from Luke and from John, you feel something of the weight and the the horror of his physical agonies. His whole being, within and without, is now bruised and torn. And they lead him up to Calvary. And what I want you particularly to see as our Lord goes up to be crucified, is the selfless love and sincere compassion that shine forth. And there are details, even in this brief portion of God's word, which point us toward the very heart of our Lord as he goes to die. The first thing we'll look at is the man who helped, a man called Simon, who was a Cyrenian. Then we'll consider the women who mourned, And then we'll turn our particular attention to the prophet who warned. First of all, then, the man who helped. As they led Jesus of Nazareth away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Normally, the criminal who had been condemned carried his own cross now there's debate over precisely what this looked like it may have been the whole cross with the 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 upright and then the cross beam most of the modern commentators with the advantage of historical research suggest it was the great cross beam itself uh, probably weighed as much as uh, half a man uh, in itself and the the criminal had to carry the instrument of his own death. It was a deliberate psychological torture. Can you imagine digging your own grave? It's a common ploy in some of the uglier conflicts in this world. That when people are captured and they're about to be executed, the last thing they have to do before the bullet or the sword or the axe or whatever it may be hits them, they have to dig their own grave, prepare the place where their body lies. Can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine being told perhaps to to tie the knot in the noose that is going to be placed around your neck? Jesus has to carry the instrument of his own torturous death. But he is so weak after the beatings and the scourgings that he has experienced that he cannot continue. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said about him in chapter 52 and verse 14. His visage was marred, his face was marred more than any man. When you look at Jesus at this point, you may struggle to recognize him. Not just as Jesus, but as a man. It's quite possible that you can see his bones, perhaps even his organs, because so much flesh has been ripped away. His face is a mass of bruises, now covered in spittle, 
with blood running down it, not just from the beatings that he suffered, but from the crown of thorns that has been pressed into his brow. He has already undergone in the course of this night the kind of treatment that often killed a man. And now he's having to carry his own cross up to Calvary. There is a real possibility, it seems, in the minds of these experienced executioners, these Roman soldiers, that he might die before he ever reaches the top of the hill. He's exhausted. At every level of his humanity, by the torments of the night. My friends, the surprise here is not that Jesus can't finish the journey. The surprise is he even began it. That he has stood so far. That he has gone with his cross. Now, we are outside Jerusalem. And we are under Roman authority. And the Romans can enlist Jews. That's what they're doing when they lay hold of Simon, a Cyrenian. It's coercion. Remember that our Lord had said a long time back before these things had come uh, into, into view. He said, if someone tells you or makes you go one mile with him, go the extra mile. That was a Roman custom. A Roman could have said to a Jew, I want you to carry my burden for a mile. So a soldier about his business could say to any passing Jew, you need to take this bag and come at least one mile with me. So that's what's going on here. The Romans are looking around for somebody to do their and Christ's dirty work for them. They grab a man, Simon, from Cyrene. That's modern-day Libya. We anticipate that he's probably a Jew who has come up to Jerusalem for the, the Passover. Uh, but he's coming from the country. He's heading in from the outside. And they lay hold of Simon a Cyrenian and they put the cross of Jesus on his shoulders. Now, Luke is naming a man that it seems the early Christians actually know. Let me demonstrate that to you. If you turn to another gospel, Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, Mark makes a passing comment. Mark 15 and verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. When you read that, what does it indicate? If I, if I were to say, for example, um, I'm asking for help from, from Alan. You know his sons. Josh and Sam? What am I doing? I'm identifying someone in terms of other people that you know. Who is this Simon? He's Rufus's dad and Alexander's dad. You know them. You know the man that I'm talking about. Now, less certainly, but at least possibly, if you think also of Romans and chapter 16, verse 13. Paul writes there, Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine, and there is at least a tradition of interpretation that suggests that that's the same Rufus. What's happened here? These are known 
not just historically, but in the church of Jesus Christ. People understand who Simon is, and they know his boys, Rufus and Alexander. And his wife, if Romans 16 is to be interpreted in that way, has been like a mother to Paul. All the indications are that Simon has become one of them, and that the gospel has now reached his wife and his two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Now pause and consider the wonder of sovereign grace at this seemingly incidental point. Where must Christ die? On a cross. What happens if he dies before the appointed hour? Then salvation is not accomplished. Prophecy is not fulfilled. And our Lord provides that a man from Libya should happen to be walking into Jerusalem as Christ staggers and falls to the ground under the weight of his cross, walking out to die. And the Roman soldiers find the nearest strong enough man and they lay hold on him and they say, this is your job now. You're to take this blood-soaked beam off the back of this piece of flesh and you need to carry it for us up to Calvary. God has provided that his son should reach his appointed destination. God has also ordered all things so that a man called Simon happens to be passing by as Jesus happens to be walking out. One of God's chosen ones is walking past as Jesus heads out to die. And it so happens, humanly speaking, that he is the man that the Romans choose to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. It seems likely that even this moment is the occasion on which Christ wins a disciple to himself. Now, our Lord had told his people in Luke chapter 14 that unless you bear your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Simon seems to learn that at first hand. The, the metaphorical becomes almost physical for him. The narrative brings you and me as close to Jesus Christ as Simon was to Jesus of Nazareth. The history that Luke records puts you and me at the same distance from the Lord Jesus as Simon the Cyrenian. You and I are just as much obliged to look into the eyes of Jesus and to consider the sufferings through which he passes, the agonies of the Lamb, as Simon was. Luke wants you to see what Simon saw. His sufferings, his agony, his beauty, his nobility and his dignity. You see, the reason why these details are given is not just to draw out of you a little human sympathy. It's to call you to faith in this Jesus. To set before you the man who dies for sinners. Simon of Cyrene is brought up 
close and personal when the soldiers lay hold on him and say, you carry this man's cross up to the hill, the place of the skull. And Luke's history brings you close too. It makes you open your eyes and and see exactly what is taking place. It also helps us to understand at least something of how God works. Put yourself in Simon's shoes. What's your attitude when you catch the eye of one of the Romans or he catches your eyes? Oh, no, no, not me, not me. How do you feel when one of them reaches out and grabs you by the tunic, drags you into this dreadful blood-soaked procession and says, you, him? Maybe you curse under your breath. Maybe you complain. Perhaps you should even put yourself in Christ's shoes in some very limited sense. That he should be in such dire straits as to need somebody now to be dragged out of the crowd to help him carry his cross. But this, my friends, was God's means of bringing this man and his soul into contact with the Saviour. Your cross-bearing may be the opportunity that you have to show somebody else the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ. And some of the things which you think are going wrong, perhaps for some of you who are not yet saved, and you've come up against challenges and difficulties, and your instinct has been to curse and complain, do you realise how many people have cried out to God for salvation because God brought them to the end of themselves. Simon may have cursed and complained when the soldiers dragged him into this procession. Afterwards, all the indications are that Simon praised God. He goes down in history as the man who helped Jesus get to Calvary's hill came to see his sufferings, came to see his sorrows. And these, it seems, may have been then the first steps in his discipleship. The man who helped in the providence of God, Simon the Cyrenian. And then there are women who mourn. There's a great multitude that follows. They may be curious it may be that this is a spectacle that they like to see. It wasn't so long ago that a, a good hanging, as they used to talk about them, some of the, the British jails would attract enormous crowds. The guillotines in the French Revolution would be thronged by people eager to see the death of these condemned men and women. And the suggestion is that that is what is taking place here. Now, among that crowd, though, Luke identifies women who mourned and lamented him. He doesn't comment much about precisely why they're doing this. It was customary. There were mourning women 
who would make it their almost their professional business. Sometimes they'd be paid for this, especially if it was a formal funeral. They're the wailers, they're the mourners. That extravagant demonstration of manifest grief that you still see in some cultures that isn't necessarily a sincere expression of the heart, but what is expected on an occasion like this. There may be, given the circumstances, something of real distress to see this man suffering in this way. A sense of regret that perhaps someone so young and someone who uh, has been declared to be innocent should now be called to die in this way. Now bear in mind, this is the man who can no longer carry his own cross. This is the man who's probably fallen on his face so often under this that he's had to be dragged back to his feet and almost propelled along while Simon carries the cross for him. And under those circumstances, the Lord Jesus Christ stops and summons enough strength to speak to these mourning women. Now, what do you say when you're done in and exhausted? I think for many of us, it's, I just don't want to talk to anybody. I've only got enough energy and time for myself. For so many of us, pain and suffering turns us selfishly inward upon ourselves. Christ, in the midst of his pain and suffering, turns out. Not preoccupied with himself, but concerned for these women. Now, what's taking place? Remember that our Lord... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is going to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Once you wipe away the blood, once you peer beyond some of these immediate sufferings, underneath there is a prospect of hope for our Lord Jesus that is holding him upright at this point in time. There is something that lies beyond the cross for him. There is an expectant joy that is pointing him in the right direction and holding him up. Is the same true for these women, these daughters of Jerusalem? What lies ahead? Christ says you need to look further and you need to see more clearly. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Christ seems to be saying gently but firmly, I do not really need your pity, especially if it's this more sentimental expression. But I am still moved with pity for you. Think of that, Christ suffering, struggling, striving, beaten, bruised and battered. He looks at these women who are weeping and he says, you shouldn't be weeping for me. You should be weeping for yourselves as I weep for you. Remember how when he looked at Jerusalem on his way into the city, Luke 19 verse 41 and following, he was weeping over the city because he knew what lay ahead for them. If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And now, at the point at which you imagine that surely Jesus must just be concentrating on putting one foot in front of the other, his concern for Jerusalem shines forth. 
His concern for the people who are around him. And this is where I want you to see, to understand the heart that is in Christ Jesus. Because we hear his words to these women. We see the instinct of his soul to do good to others. Don't lose sight of the fact that this is your great high priest who is bearing your names, brothers and sisters, upon his heart. He is going up for you. You look at this. Isn't it incredible that he's thinking about these women at this time? My friends, is it not marvellous that he's thinking about every one of his people at this time? That you are upon the heart of your saviour. That at the moment when you might have imagined that he would be taken up with himself. That he is taken up with you. This is for you. This is on your behalf. You who believe and you who come to know him. You see Christ is telling them. And he's reminding us. You need to respond rightly to what you see. It seems likely that these women are being prompted by the immediate horror of Christ's sorrows and struggles. And he's saying, make sure you weep for the right people for the right reason. It's one thing to hear these details and to feel your soul oppressed. But what about your sin? What about the consequences of your sin? Notice then that it is Christ-like not to indulge in self-pity. My instinct and yours, woe is me. Christ's in the depths of his woe. Woe unto you if you do not believe the gospel. My friends, compassion for souls will turn us out of our selfish selves and make us truly concerned for what is eternal in our own lives and in the lives of others. And that brings us then to the prophet who warned. Because Christ's compassion for these women is neither vague pity nor formless concern. You know, this isn't, what is it, don't cry for me, Argentina. This isn't some silly sentimental musical number. Don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children because of what lies ahead. Christ looks forward. The days are coming in which they will say, blessed. Now what normally follows when someone issues, this is a beatitude. Christ has issued beatitudes before. But he's saying there is going to come a point in their history at which there will be an apocalyptic reversal of everything that seems normal and happy now. If you go back to the Psalms, especially Psalm 127 or, or those like it, blessed are the women who bear. Blessed are the breasts who nurse. Christ says, no, there's going to come a day when barrenness will be a blessing. There is something coming that will make it seem coherent and reasonable to say that the barren woman is blessed. The womb that never bore is happy. The breasts which never nursed have been favoured by God. What on earth could lie ahead that would bring a society to that point? 
Our Lord expands and develops. He quotes the prophets. He's speaking here from Hosea chapter 8 and verse 10. Then they will begin to say, quote, to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. Now what's taking place? Again, our Lord has already said something about this in Luke chapter 21 verses 20 to 24. You see Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Know that its desolation is near. Judgment is coming upon the people of God under the old covenant. Judgment is arriving upon the Jewish nation to whom Messiah has come and who are now sending Messiah to their death. Judgment is going to fall for the wickedness of these people and it will be such a judgment that they will prefer death to wrath. I can't imagine, I may be wrong, I can't imagine that many of us have ever reached the point at which because of grief of soul and agony of body, we would say, it is better for me that I should die than live. If you read the history of the Soviet gulags and the worst of communist Russia, the living envied the dead. Christ says that there's such a fearful outpouring of wrath coming that those who have families and children would wish that they'd never had them. And people will look around at the mountains and the hills and they'd rather be swept away by an avalanche, swallowed up by an earthquake, crushed by the rocks and the hills rather than face what lies before them. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Some of you boys are cubs, scouts, enjoy making fires, even if you're not in cubs and scouts. Some of you perhaps have had burners at home you don't start a fire with green wood. Green wood doesn't burn, not particularly well, not particularly quickly. The fire doesn't take. But you put it in the dry, it catches, and it flares, and it flames. Now, Lord Jesus uses this illustration, and I think he's referring primarily to himself. If they do these things in the green wood. Who will bring the judgments upon Jerusalem that they deserve? The Romans will be the instruments of God's wrath. And in AD 70 they will come. And they will bring such a fearful terror upon Jerusalem. That I will not tell you some of the details of what happened in that city under siege. Christ is in their hands now, an innocent man. And he is going up to hang at Roman hands under the wrath of Almighty God. This is what they're doing in the green wood. What will happen to the dry? 
if the Lord makes the Romans the means of judgment against his own son? What of those upon whom he brings his wrath for the sins that they have committed against him and against his son? If they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Remember who speaks and where and to whom. Jesus, God's saviour, who is now on the last steps of his way to lay down his life for all those who trust in him, warns these women concerning the wrath which is to come. You do understand, don't you, that a warning is a mercy. Christ has never reveled in the judgment that is to come. It is holy. It is true. It is righteous. It is just. But Christ has wept over Jerusalem. And now he says to these women, you should be weeping too. Weeping for your sins and the judgment which will follow them. Because you have disobeyed God, you have rejected his Messiah, you have walked in your own ways. And perhaps even now you do not understand what is taking place before you. What does the warning give? The warning gives you an opportunity to stop. The warning gives you an opportunity to consider what is happening. The warning gives you an opportunity to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. And the warning comes from the very mouth of that Jesus. See, when Christ tells you, my friends, flee from the wrath which is to come, those words fall from the lips of the man who has tasted that wrath for his people who has drunk the cup of judgment on behalf of all who will trust in him. It is not spoken unfeelingly, but most profoundly. And it comes from a heart of love, a heart of selfless compassion. Christ warns by way of his word, by way of his servants, in order that you might flee from the judgments which lie ahead. See, what is striking here is that this is not the last time that this Hosea language is used in our Bibles. The imagery is there in Hosea chapter 10. The echo is here in Luke chapter 23. The last fearful crash is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. When the day of the Lord comes, when the last great judgment arrives of which the judgment upon Jerusalem was a mere shadow and picture, when even the great ones of the earth, the ones who you think would be standing at the last, the men armed and mailed who can stand against any foes, even they shall be crying out to the rocks and the hills to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. And so our Lord Jesus turns to these women and by extension he turns to you and me this morning and he says 
I want more than a natural grief. You may look at my sufferings and my sorrows and you might say, that's awful, that's terrible. How could any human being do that to any other human being? And if that's as far as you go, and even if your eyes fill with tears and your stomach churns at the prospect, Christ says, go beyond a natural response. What am I doing? Where am I going? Why do I go? See, so often today, religion is simply meant to stir up emotion. True religion is meant to prompt contrition, repentance, grief over sin, a consciousness of the judgment that our sins deserve and warned by the grace and mercy of God and with Christ as Saviour set before us to turn from our sins now and to trust in him. I want you to see then the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. I want you to grasp something of his agonies, but I want you to hear his warnings. If this is what they do in the greenwood, if this is what happened to a Jerusalem which rejected God and his Christ, what will happen to you in the last great day? My friends, that warning comes because Christ loves you. The warning comes because I love you. Because I do not want to stand on that last day and see you swept into the horrors of hell because you would not turn now to Jesus Christ. We do not know when that day will come, but we know that it comes quickly. You will never carry Christ's cross the way that Simon did. But Christ does tell you to take up your cross and carry it. For whoever loses his life will gain it. Are you trusting the suffering servant now? Will you now trust the substitute for sinners? A fearful suffering for sin is coming soon. He suffered for us. And by trusting in him, our sin is removed. God's wrath turned from us, taken by him. The stripes fall upon him, and by him we are healed.